News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in on everything that has been happening in the United States this week. Reggie Cicchini joins us now, our Washington correspondent for Global News. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, I'm going to start with the question that you've been getting, I've been getting all week, is what is going on with all these shootings in people's driveways? Uh, I mean, the short answer is guns. Uh, the, the, the reason that these shootings are happening is because there is a gun issue in this country, uh, so much so that if you look at just the, the broad stats before we look into these matters, uh, there are 120 guns in America for every 100 people. There is no other nation on Earth that is in a situation like that. Um, and it results in indiscriminate um unnecessary rounds of gun violence. And oftentimes that can put me in a position of crossing an editorial line, but I've covered so many mass shootings and individual shootings in this country since I've been here um, that patterns uh, start to, to, to form. Uh, And when you have, you know, over the course of a week, the situation of a 16 year old knocking on the wrong door, somebody in upstate New York pulling into the wrong driveway and somebody with a rifle shoots numerous people killing one. When you have a six year old girl shot because her basketball rolled onto the lawn of, of a North Carolina homeowner who then fled and had to be arrested hundreds of miles away in Florida, the question becomes, the, uh, the question begs or, or, or looks at the accessibility of guns and why so many people have access to guns that maybe don't need to have guns. I was also thinking the other one, too. I think this one was in Texas where the girls, they, she just got into the wrong car. She tried to get into the wrong car. She was mistook it for her own car, just tried the door handle and somebody shot her. Yeah, and and this is a growing problem. We have seen, um, you know, report after report come out to say that there needs to be something done to curb gun violence or at least stem gun ownership. The 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 president has said that he's essentially exhausted all options um, from the Oval Office when it comes to executive action to be able to put some other kind of gun reform or gun legislation in place, leaving that to Congress, who obviously is deadlocked on on the matter here. Uh, and unfortunately, this country will find itself in a situation of seeing these kinds of indiscriminate shootings continue because there there is no way to end that. Right. Okay. So obviously that's an ongoing issue, as is what we have going on right now with the battle for abortion rights in the United States. What is with this um, delayed court decision that is going on? It's a good question. We don't know what the reason for the delay was. It was announced on Wednesday. It's a self it, Wednesday was a self-imposed deadline by Justice Samuel Alito to have a decision made not on the broad issue of mifepristone and its availability in the United States. This is solely looking at restrictions on the pill while the court battle uh, plays out. They put a Friday, a today deadline of 11:59 p.m. We'll have to wait to find out precisely what the judge, uh, what the court is going to rule. But the reason for the delay could be that there was indecisiveness amongst the uh, justices on the court and how they want to move forward. And, you know, from 30,000 feet, what this is looking at is uh, the competing appeals decisions that were made on the banning of mifepristone. It can remain on shelves, but there was an appeal made to restrictions on how many times somebody needs to go to a doctor or the ability to access it via telehealth or in the mail. That is what is being figured out right now. And we should have an answer on that sometime in the next few hours. Okay, and so this, the battle over this one is a little bit different, right, Reggie? Because uh, this is a medication that was approved by the Federal Drug Administration. 
Yes. So to step back on this, it was a fight that started last year with a, uh, an anti-abortion group who, who found a judge that was sympathetic to the cause to ban this pill in general, saying that it is not safe, despite the fact that it has more than 20 years of facts and science behind it. Uh, that is now playing out. There was then the appeals decisions that came to potentially banning it or putting restrictions on it or, you know, leaving some restrictions on it. That is a long battle that is going to continue to play out. All we're waiting for right now is a decision on whether or not restrictions to this widely used pill, Mifepristone, are going to remain in place. You know, there's going to be a reaction one way or the other once this decision comes down. Okay, and since we talked a bit about the Supreme Court there, I think we should jump on to the Clarence Thomas uh, story as well. We, we touched on it last week, but there were even more developments this week. Yeah, and, and, and the developments are linked to um, improperly filed disclosure forms when it comes to uh, financial uh, issues that are surrounding the justice, including decades of lavish gifts being handed to him or being accepted from a billionaire Republican donor. This is on top of other financial and ethical issues that Clarence Thomas has been facing now for the last several years. And there is a growing call amongst Democrats for the justice to resign. There is an overarching question, though, as to why the Supreme Court doesn't really have a code of ethics that it has to follow like lower courts do. And there are some trying to push, well, maybe Congress needs to legislate uh, a code of ethics for the high bench to to be able to follow, which would then raises a question of the separation of powers. Can somebody legislate a co-equal branch of government? At the end of the day, this is going to be up to either the justice to figure this out or Supreme Court Justice um, uh, uh, Thomas Roberts, who leads the bench, to open up an investigation. He's been called to testify before the Senate. It's unclear if that's going to happen. But again, all this does is put further questions of accountability on the country's highest court. Right, because it's not just about the the trips that he accepted, Clarence Thomas now, right? Because it's also about um, disclosures that he had on his forums, about where he was getting income from. It sounds like there was like, more to this. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when there are already concerns that he may have ties to conservative-leaning groups that may have had influence on decisions that have been made uh, or at least signed off on by the justice, not just recently, but over his tenure on the bench. And again, it calls into question whether or not the court could be doing something more to ensure that justices are following ethical codes. Second question being, Simi, if the court were to create its own code of ethics, are the justices just going to write it so that they can kind of skirt around the rules? Those are kind hmm. of the open-ended questions right now. Oh, boy. Okay. And I have to touch on some entertainment news uh, as well. Alec Baldwin is what, – what happened? Involuntary manslaughter charges were now dropped against him? They have been dropped, uh, but the it is important to note here that just because they've been dropped, uh, prosecutors saying it doesn't mean that they can't be refiled. They just say that the evidence needs to be looked at further, that an investigation needs to be broadened. Uh, Alec Baldwin uh, says that he is uh, innocent. He has continued to to claim his innocence and says that, you know, anything that happened on the set uh, was was sheerly accidental and he had no intent of, of, of harming or killing anybody on that set. There are questions over... Uh, the gun itself and whether or not there were some tampering here. And because of all of that, there are no charges, or at least the charges have been pulled. But again, that doesn't mean that it is case closed. There are others that are facing charges in this matter. There have already been probation sentences that have been handed down. And prosecutors say, look, as this investigation moves forward, 
there is a real chance here that this could continue to be an issue for for Mr. Baldwin. So it's it's clear for now, mm. but for how long we don't know. Okay, and um, before I let you go, we have to talk a little presidential politics here too, because we know that Donald Trump is running for president. We think Ron DeSantis is running for president. He hasn't said that yet, uh, and now we're hearing that maybe Joe Biden is finally going to make this official. Yeah, I mean, number one on Ron DeSantis at the beginning of the year, he was up 14 points over Donald Trump. He's now trailing by more than 15 points, according to the poll. So there's an issue there. And he's not even in the race. Joe Biden was widely expected to announce possibly within the next couple of weeks, even sometime maybe in October. We now are hearing that it could be on Tuesday that a video is going to drop announcing that he is putting his hat in the race for 2024. That would be the four year anniversary to when he announced in 2019 that he was running for 2020. The Democrat party is mostly lined up. 81% of the party essentially says that they would vote for uh, Joe Biden. The question becomes, is his age going to be a factor for some people? He would be 86 years old in his final year if he were to get a second term. There are already questions about senators of an advanced age and whether or not they have the mental acuity to be in that position. Is that going to register with voters if he decides to run on Election Day? Oh, I think it might. All right, Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Have a great week. That is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, once again, just scratching the surface of all the stories out of the United States this week. And once again, another fascinating week for our neighbors to the south. This is Mornings with Simi. There's been a lot of discussion this week about BC's credit rating. To be fair, I think this is something a lot of British Columbians probably haven't thought of for a few years. But we now know that one of the four big credit rating agencies has slightly downgraded BC's credit. What does that mean for us, though? And what does it mean just in terms of politics here in B.C. and what should be happening? Joining us now is Carson Bidnett, B.C.'s director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, to talk about this. Good morning. Thanks, Simi. Thanks so much for having me on today. Well, thanks for talking about this with us. So what what kind of an impact do you think this is going to have? And keeping in mind, this is one credit rating agency, right? Yeah. So, look, according to SMP, they lowered our uh, long-term credit rating because of record levels of spending and a steep increase in debt. Those are their words. David Eby, he took a $5.7 billion surplus and turned it into a $4.2 billion deficit. Eby and Finance Minister Conroy, they presented a credit card budget, and now the consequences are, uh, are starting to come to pasture here. Okay, so what do you think this means, though, long term for, for B.C.? Yeah, so when a credit rating is lowered, that means that taxpayers are going to be on the hook for more money every time that the government wants to borrow it. And borrowing is huge in B.C. right now. I mean, at the end of 2022, the provincial debt was hovering around $94 billion dollars. By 2026, that's going all the way up to $133 billion. I mean, that's a 42% increase in just a handful of years. Okay, so is this a sign then, Carson? Do you think, is, there, is this a bit of a wake-up call? It should absolutely be a wake-up call. Yeah, downgrades, all these movements in the financial market, they can be really hard for folks to relate to. I mean, we don't always see the impacts right away. But this downgrade needs to come as a stark warning to our politicians that there are actual consequences for their bad fiscal policy. Government's going to have less access to credit moving forward, and that credit is going to cost taxpayers more. EB needs to rein in his out-of-control spending that he presented to us in the last budget. Okay, so what do you think that is this, do you wait to see what the next budget says? Like, is this going to be a habit or do you think, okay, let's, we have to rein this in right now? 
No, we need to rein this in right now. I mean, David Eby today needs to put down the taxpayer credit card, pick up a pair of scissors and start paying down this ridiculous debt that we've racked up. Instead, he keeps offering more out-of-control spending. That needs to end. There needs to be some fiscal sanity reigned in in Victoria. Right. But Carson, let me just point out here, didn't the other credit agencies also point out that a lot of this debt that was taken on was for big capital projects like infrastructure? Yeah, EB has been spending a lot of money on infrastructure, but they also pointed out that rising debt. That rising debt's a huge issue. I mean, our debt servicing costs this year alone are projected to be about $3.3 billion. That's $3.3 billion being spent on interest on a debt. It's going right out the door instead of staying here in BC where it could be used to build schools, build hospitals, or stay in taxpayers' pockets. Okay, so do you think that they should be cutting back on these projects? Yeah, uh, they absolutely need to be cutting back on their increased spending. So, but, that, but, but the spending on these projects, though, should they be cutting back on those? Like they shouldn't build some of these things? Sure. And I can give you a great example. The new museum building in Colwood, that was initially pegged at $177 million, or pardon me, yeah, that, which is now, pardon me, jumped up all the way to $270 million. I mean, that's an increase of $93 million on this one single capital project. And shovels haven't even broken earth yet. Okay, do you think, what about some of these billion-dollar projects, though, like the Patola Bridge or, say, the the Massey Tunnel Replacement Project? Should that kind of stuff be put on hold? So right now, with this huge debt that we're seeing, British Columbian taxpayers need to be asking if now is the time for all those projects. If your family racks up a huge credit card bill, is now really the best time to go pick up a few new flat-screen TVs? Probably not. Hmm. Okay, Carson, thanks so much for your time on that today. Thanks so much for having me on this morning, Simi. That's Carson Bidda, BC's Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thinks that the provincial government should be reining things in in light of the fact that a credit rating agency has uh, slightly downgraded BC's debt. For sure, that is a concern. We talked about it with Vaughn Palmer this week too, right? The question is, is this the start of a trend or is it a one-off? And that is what should be a concern to the BC government right now. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It's devastating, you know, when you're told that you're going to have a season upcoming and uh, it's just cancelled on you out of nowhere. A special advisor. That's what Simon Fraser University is planning to deal with the outcry over their cancellation of the varsity football program. And that is affecting student athletes like the one that you just heard from. That's Keyshawn Dorsey. They're talking about how hard this has been. And there was a lot of hope with meetings scheduled between school administration and the boosters that have been hoping to save the program. And those meetings were this week. But what they heard when those meetings were over is we'll appoint a special advisor. Let's talk about this. Joining us now is Jim Mullen, President of Football Canada, who has been helping to lead the charge to reinstate the program. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Simi. Uh, you must be disappointed. Uh, disappointed uh, is a mild term for this. You know, to go through this process where Simon Fraser cut the football program with zero warning, uh, zero consultation, Uh, President Joy Johnson uh, looked like she was opening the door to to at least having meaningful dialogue. It was not meaningful dialogue. It was three 30-minute meetings. In in the last meeting, 
that they had with one of the stakeholders. The press release was actually sent out during the meeting. Uh, You're kidding me. No, no, no. We, we, we did the timeline on it, and I talked to the individual who was involved, and, and he was even surprised at this. Uh, that this was going out the door while these discussions were going on. The arrogance, the arrogance of Simon Fraser University and the president's office in this process has been uh, unmatched in, in anything that I've come across in university sport in 30 years. Wow. Yeah, Jim, those are really strong words. So I know there was a lot of hope leading into these meetings because everyone that I had talked to didn't want to kind of add fuel to the fire because there was so much hope. So tell me, what was the attitude like in the meetings and what did people hear? It seemed that it was going to be constructive. There, there were words like the door is open, uh, that the uh, boosters, in one case, had the opportunity to present facts that the, U- that the university and the president's office uh, hadn't considered. There are 95 players available on a roster. One of the things that the university says is that there aren't enough players. Uh, Blake Mill won a uh, Vanier Cup over at UBC in 2015, starting out with 72 players and had 56 on the roster when they won the championship. So, so that's not an argument. Uh, a place to play. Uh, the boosters have put together a uh, schedule with nine games. In a Canada West schedule, there's eight games. So there's this even mix of five Canadian teams and four American teams, and it concludes with the Shrumble at the end uh, versus UBC. There's a long list of facts that are out there, but the problem is, uh, the Board of Governors didn't know about this situation uh, while the executive was making this decision. And now the Board of Governors is getting backfilled with all kinds of disinformation uh, within that circle at Simon Fraser University. And, and, and it's really going to be difficult to try to break through to that. But hopefully if the facts come out between now and the court date on uh, May the 3rd for the injunction. Maybe we can get this thing turned around before five students go into a court and, and have to take on a university. That's not a good look for the university. Well, th- what did they, th- I guess, what was the impression that you had about what they thought was going to happen? Like these meetings would be enough and everybody would stand down? Because I don't, I don't understand what their end game was then. Uh, well, the end, the end game is to kill the football program from Simon Fraser's uh, uh, perspective. That was that's that's pretty clear now. And and the issue here is like we're not getting feedback to the true reason why they want to kill the program. If they're talking about student experience, did they survey the students after the uh, after the last football season? No, they didn't survey the students. They're, they're, they're guessing <laughs> that, that, that a one and nine season was a bad experience for them. These kids want to come back and play football again. That, that's part of their student experience. That's part of what they signed up to uh, when, when they signed up to this football program or took a scholarship from this university. So uh, at the end of the day, we don't know the true reason. Why, why, why they're making this uh, decision to kill the football program. And, but and yet, yeah, the, it would help. It would help if we knew why. I know, but the statement yesterday was all about having an open and transparent process. 
it's kicking the can. It, it's it, it's winding the clock down. How do you have an open process? A, when you haven't had an open process up until this point, and B, how do you examine opportunities for a football program when you won't reinstate the football program? It, it's absolutely ridiculous. Part, part of the part of the reaction when this thing came out amongst boosters and amongst those in the football community was astonishment that that something like this could be presented without reinstating the program. If you don't reinstate the program while you're going through this process, especially when you have money to do it, they said it's not about the money. Amar Dolman has stepped up and said, you want more money? We'll help you raise more money on this to to make sure that Simon Fraser is viable when it comes to football. You have a schedule. You have players. You have a coach. Play the damn season. Jim, let me ask you, how are the student-athletes doing? It's tough on them. It, it, it's really tough on them. They're, 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 in a, they're in a holding pattern. They believe that uh, as we soldier forth towards this court date, we'll have an answer one way or another on this. Some of them have put their uh, names in uh, to the transfer window to, to look for other opportunities, but they're all holding back right now. Uh, certainly it was um, a positive that the Canadian University coaches opened up three spots in the annual East West Bowl, which is a big event within the football world where all of the youth sports athletes get together uh, and and play in a game where they're uh, evaluated by the CFL. So there's been some, you know, good signs. There's been some good news, and they've done a great job of telling their own story on, on social media platforms through this. But it's tough on them. And you know who it's also tough on? It's tough on families. Yeah, like the feedback that I've got from parents on this, like man alive, it, it's you know the, the the you know this is Canada's engaged university, and I'm amazed that they're so out of touch with their student athletes, with the families, and with the community in this media furor. There's there, there's really something wrong with a university that can be so disconnected from all these people that they supposedly serve. This is how I feel, too, and I'm an alum, and I feel that. Jim, thanks so much for your time on that. Thank you very much, Simi. And we'll keep in touch because we want to know what else is going on. That's Jim Mullen, President of Football Canada, talking about the disappointment right now with SFUs uh, dealing with this situation. That's really what it is, right? It's like they've made what was a, a bad problem. They've made it worse every step of the way with the lack of communication, the ignoring. And your reputation is all you have when you're an institution like SFU. And they are really doing some damage to it right now. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's check in with our Vancouver Whitecaps because, boy, have they earned some time off. They have been busy. Manny Sartini, coach of the Whitecaps, joins us now. Morning, coach. Morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. You need some rest, don't you? Yeah, we need it. We needed it. Like, uh, uh, so I think that the, the schedule was uh, perfect this week to have this, uh, this week without a game. So I was able to give like uh, four days off uh, to the to the players and the staff we 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 need after uh, after like uh, weeks where we played like uh, two times uh, two times a week it was very demanding and uh, after this uh, week off it's going to start another very demanding period with i think uh, 
six or seven games in 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 four weeks. So yeah, oh. it's it's much needed. I would say. <laughs> I would say so. You had five games in fifteen days. That was very busy. So what did you do during your days off? You must have had some good. You slept a lot. Yes, yes, that, that's <laughs> what I did. <laughs> and also, you know, the weather was perfect to sleep a lot. That's true. Every day. It really was. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about the games that you are now getting ready for. So I know you've got one coming up against Colorado. And you yeah. know what? You, you're, you've been hanging in there. The team has been hanging in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's... Uh, at the moment, we are in a kind in a playoff position. It's still too early to make any kind of, I would say, um, prediction on say that we're on track. But uh, we're playing well. So in the last three games, we didn't concede a goal. Uh, we made seven points in three games. Uh, the last two games at home, we won. So uh, we have this chance now where we have two games uh, in a row at BC Place. We play Colorado April 29. And the following Saturday, we're going to play Minnesota. That uh, if uh, we really do well uh, at the end of these two weeks, uh, we we could be very high in the standings. And uh, I would say that would be, I would say, really a different outlook on the season, on what this season can be. Because I say every time that um, I can feel that the team is playing well, there's belief. So I think that uh, this season we can do special things. I think so, too. So we'll be watching, Coach. Good luck. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. That is Coach Vanny Sartini of the Vancouver Whitecaps. They had four days off. They are back on now, back on the pitch practicing, and they're heading for a game next week. So they got a bye week this week. But next Saturday, they've got that game against Colorado Rapids. That's the one that we have been giving away tickets for. It is happening at BC Place. And remember... You can catch all those Whitecaps games. If you're not there in person, you can catch them on AM 730. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you heard the story about this gold heist at Pearson? Boy, it's all over the news today, right? Peel police there have confirmed they've got an investigation going on. They say a shipping container containing roughly $20 million in gold and what they call other high-value items vanished from Pearson International Airport in Toronto. And RCMP are calling it a gold heist. So this happened a few days ago. They said the plane landed on the evening of April the 17th. And so then the cargo from the plane was transported to a holding facility. And at that point, they think it was removed by, quote, illegal means from that facility. And then the cargo was reported missing. So many questions about this, right? What what was going on here? What happened to it? So there's clearly more to come on that. But here's the thing. This is not the first gold heist in our country. Oh, no, it is not. Shirley Smith-Masseson joins us now, the award-winning author of Lost, Unsolved Mysteries of Canadian Aviation. And boy, she's got some stories in there for sure. Shirley, thanks for being with us. Very welcome. Did you think when you heard about this story that I might have to write about this one? <laughs> I already had uh-huh. but, uh, with Ken Lishman, but uh, no, this one is uh, not solved, far from being solved. Well, let's talk about the one that you just mentioned there, the Flying Bandit, which you wrote about. So what was this heist all about? Well, my story is called Flight Plans for Freedom, but Ken Leishman was a very charismatic man. He was a pilot. He was uh, a bank robber. He was a family man. He had seven children. He had two sides to him, uh, very much so. He was, you know, belonged to the Chamber of Commerce. He'd be president. He did all this, but he also had the other side, and 
he needed money. He His future was in jeopardy. He had children to support. And so he thought one more uh, caper. And so became he went for gold. Wow, that seemed to be what people always go for, right? Go for the gold. <laughs> go for the gold. So what year was this? March 6, 1966. Wow. Okay, so what did he do? Well, uh, I'll just tell you briefly, the Winnipeg International Airport uh, regularly received gold shipments from the mines at Red Lake, Ontario. And these shipments would arrive via Transair's Douglas DC-3. Uh, the cargo was signed off, transferred to an Air Canada f- uh, freight truck, loaded onto a connecting flight for its destination of the Royal Mint in Ottawa. So Ken observed the, the system and uh, saw 12 wooden boxes at 50 pounds per box, equaling 600 pounds of gold being unloaded and staged a plan. But like most plans like this, it requires other people to be involved, and that was the downfall. Oh, why? What happened? Well, (laughs) he chose as his confidant uh, a criminal lawyer named Harry Backlund. Harry claimed to know overseas buyers who regularly dealt in such matters, so Ken offered him 50% of the profit if he agreed to finance the operation and arrange the sale. So clean operators would also be required to undertake the transfers. So here we go again, opening up for more people. Right. Um, a perpetually broke salesman named John Barry uh, was offered $10,000 for 10 minutes work. John agreed, recommended another partner, a high-flying salesman named Rick Granko. Uh, Shirley, it sounds to me like we're getting to be Ocean's Eleven here. There's a lot of people involved. Yes, it's just spreading here. Um, And then Rick told about his brother Paul, who sold vacuum cleaners on Ontario, and he could hang around the Red Lake as an on-site spy. So, uh, for practice, one night, they took an Air Canada freight vehicle, uh, a white GMC panel, for a spin when it was found in the hangar at Winnipeg Airport with the keys in the ignition, and no one questioned them. Next, they bought white coveralls and navy blue parkas from Army and Navy surplus stores, hand-stenciled with Air Canada logos to resemble the company's ground crew uniforms, and then for hardware, Ken produced a 32 caliber Beretta. So when they spotted the boxes on the loading dock, uh, this Paul Ganko called in to report that 12 wooden boxes were scheduled for the flight from Red Lake to Winnipeg. So that very day, Tuesday, March 6, 1966, Ken drove to the Winnipeg airport, met his partners John and Rick, who'd arrived in their Ford Galaxy ragtop, gave them instructions, and then he, Ken, drove off to an empty warehouse office near the airport to wait while the boys did the job. So, John and Rick drove the Air Canada truck to meet Flight 108, watched the cargo hatch open, conveyor belt start up, boxes come sliding down, then Rick handed the attendant a way bill, said, this shipment has to be transferred right away, it's got to go on a late, late flight leaving in 30 minutes. He and John helped to hoist the heavy boxes off the conveyor belt onto the dolly. Like that's all it took? The, he just had to tell the guy, oh, hey, I need these boxes? N- nope, because he had the forms. Then forms were filled out over the forged signature of an Air Canada official. The attendant added his. Rick scribbled Fred Davis as the receiver, which was a false name. 
actually a name of a man who was well known on CBC uh, television on uh, uh, a television show. Then they secured the doors of the truck, and by 10.20 p.m., they were off with their load of gold. Wow, how much money was this gold worth? Well, at that time, uh, it was only $35 an ounce, but um, uh, now it's $2,700 an ounce, I believe. But it was 1966. Yes, and so it was worth, at that time, uh, $382,436. So... um, the story becomes more bizarre. Um, do you want to hear the rest? Well, I'm just so fascinated by this. You're talking a couple million dollars, and it just sounds like it wasn't that hard for them to do it, Shirley. Well, it took some planning, and Ken was good at planning. He was a very smart man, uh, and they figured out that, uh, well, they got away with so much, but... What happened was instead of following, well, after they got the gold in the back of the, the, the Air Canada van, right. uh, instead of following the usual r- routine, they drove to the parking lot, transferred the gold into their convertible, the Ford Galaxy, the tail-dragging convertible, oh, 800 pounds of gold, <laughs> yeah. weighing down the, the station wagon, and then they drove to Harry Backlund's house to temporarily stash the load. How did they get they, caught? Well, <laughs> that took a long time. Um, anyway, they stashed it in Harry's mother's deep freeze. And um, by that night, the RCM or the St. James police were pretty aware that this uh, had happened, 12 bars of gold. So Harry had the plan to have overseas buyers from Hong Kong that would buy it. Because one thing to steal gold, but how do you get rid well, of it? Well, exactly. Right? Yeah. How do you get your money? So... Um, Ken um, had to go to Vancouver, with, and so he secured the money belt about his waist, six pounds of the gold that he'd sawed into three pieces from one brick to show the potential buyers. Now, this was mistake number six or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, meanwhile, he's at the Vancouver airport, and uh, he... Uh, decided to abort his trip and uh, cancel his reservation, buy a tick back to Winnipeg. But when he arrived at the check-in counter, he was told the RCMP wished to, rid- to visit him. So how do you get rid of the gold in- on his belt? Well, he walked out of the terminal building, came back inside with an empty money belt. Where did he put it? He stashed it. He secured it in an irrigation ditch at the south side of Vancouver International Airport. This is this story is crazy. I could see why you wrote a whole book about this, Shirley. Now we're just we're just about I'm out of time here, Shirley. But I just got to know they caught him, right? Yes, they did eventually. Eventually, yes. He he he, and he got a few years, uh, quite a few years. Only one year for the theft of the gold, but he had other things. He escaped from inescapable jails. He memorized the lock systems on these jails. Um, I was given his personal journals written about how he analyzed the lock systems and the guard systems and this and that. What a guy. So the story goes on and on. The gold heist was only one part of Ken Lishman's amazing career. No uh, kidding. Okay, Shirley, I'm going to have to track down your book and read this whole thing in person. Please do. I it's will. Lost Unsolved Mysteries of Canadian Aviation, published by Frontenac House Limited. I am looking for it right now. Shirley, thank you for your time. Thank you.